And now part two of the opinion of the court in Axon Enterprise, Inc., the Federal Trade Commission. We begin with part two, section B of the opinion. Section B. One way of framing the question we must decide is whether the cases before us are more like Thunder Basin and Elgin or more like Free Enterprise Fund. The answer appears from 30,000 feet not very hard. Recall our task. To decide if a claim is of the type Congress thought belonged within a statutory scheme. The claims here are of the same ilk as the one in Free Enterprise Fund. There, the complaint alleged that the board's freedom from presidential oversight rendered unconstitutional all power and authority the board exercised. Only the court's ability to sever the relevant statutes for cause removal provision enabled the board to keep running. The Article II challenges in Axon's and Cochrane's cases would likewise prevent ALJs, through whom the commissions do much of their work, from exercising any power, unless they lose their double-for-cause tenure protection. And Axon's combination of functions claim similarly goes to the core of the FTC's existence, given that the agency indeed houses, and by design, both prosecutorial and adjudicative activities. The challenges here, as in Free Enterprise Fund, are not to any specific substantive decision, say to fining a company or firing an employee. Nor are they to the commonplace procedures agencies use to make such a decision. They are instead challenges, again as in Free Enterprise Fund, to the structure or very existence of an agency. They charge that an agency is wielding authority unconstitutionally in all or a broad swath of its work. Given that equivalence, it would be surprising to treat the claims here differently from the one in Free Enterprise Fund, which we held belonged in district court. And when we apply the Thunder Basin factors, we indeed come out in the same place as Free Enterprise Fund. Our reasoning differs in some particulars, reflecting variations between that case and the two here. But the 30,000-foot view of the issue before us ends up a good proxy for the more granular one. Each of the three Thunder Basin factors signals that a district court has jurisdiction to adjudicate Axon's and Cochran's, like the accounting firm's, sweeping constitutional claims. We begin with the factor whose application here is least straightforward, whether preclusion of district court jurisdiction could foreclose all meaningful judicial review. Thunder Basin and Elgin both make clear 
that adequate judicial review does not usually demand a district court's involvement. Review of agency action in a court of appeals can alone meaningfully address a party's claims. Still more, we agree with the government that the reason Free Enterprise Fund gave for departing from Thunder Basin and Elgin on the judicial review issue does not apply to the cases before us. As just described, Free Enterprise Fund's analysis on that score relied on the separation between the board and the SEC. The accounting firm, recall, was enmeshed in a board investigation. But some board actions never go to the SEC. And the statutory scheme, we explained, provides only for judicial review of commission action. That meant the accounting firm, absent district court jurisdiction, might never have had judicial recourse. But no such worry exists here. Cochrane and Axon are parties in ongoing SEC and FTC proceedings, and the statute at issue provide for judicial review of SEC and FTC action. Under those statutes, Axon and Cochrane can eventually obtain review of their constitutional claims through an appeal from an adverse agency action to a court of appeals. So Free Enterprise Fund's analysis of the judicial review factor does not control. Yet a problem remains stemming from the interaction between the alleged injury and the timing of review. To see the difficulty, think first about Thunder Basin and Elgin. If an appellate court had ruled in favor of the coal company or the federal employee on review of an agency decision, the court could have remedied the party's injury. It could have revoked the fine assessed on the company or reinstated the employee with back pay. But not so here. The harm Axon and Cochrane allege is being subjected to unconstitutional agency authority, a proceeding by an unaccountable ALJ. That harm may sound a bit abstract, but this court has made clear that it is a here-and-now injury. And here is the rub. It is impossible to remedy once the proceeding is over, which is when appellate review kicks in. Suppose a court of appeals agrees with Axon on review of an adverse FTC decision that ALJ-led proceedings violate the separation of powers. The court could, of course, vacate the FTC's order. But Axon's separation of powers claim is not about that order. Indeed, Axon would have the same claim had it won before the agency. The claim, again, is about subjection to an illegitimate proceeding led by an illegitimate decision-maker. And as to that grievance, the Court of Appeals can do nothing. A proceeding that has already happened cannot be undone. Judicial review of Axon's and Cochrane's structural constitutional claims would come too late to be meaningful.
The limits of that conclusion are important to emphasize. The government, in disputing our position, notes that many review schemes involving not only agency action but also civil and criminal litigation require parties to wait before appealing, even when doing so subjects them to significant burdens. That is true and will remain so. Nothing we say today portends newfound enthusiasm for interlocutory review. Return, for example, to Thunder Basin and Elgin. There, the coal company and federal employee could both have argued that the statutory review process would subject them to greater litigation costs than their preferred suit in district court. But that would not have mattered. We have made clear, just as the government says, that the expense and disruption of protracted adjudicatory proceedings on a claim do not justify immediate review. What makes the difference here is the nature of the claims and accompanying harms that the parties are asserting. Again, Axon and Cochrane protest the here-and-now injury of subjection to an unconstitutionally structured decision-making process, and more, subjection to that process irrespective of its outcome, or of other decisions made with it. A nearer analogy than any the government offers is to our established immunity doctrines. There, we have identified certain rights not to stand trial or face other legal processes, and we have recognized that those rights are effectively lost if review is deferred until after trial. So too here, Exxon and Cochrane will lose their rights not to undergo the complaint of agency proceedings if they cannot assert those rights until the proceedings are over. The collateralism factor favors Axon and Cochrane for much the same reason, because they are challenging the Commission's power to proceed at all, rather than actions taken in the agency proceedings. That distinction, as noted earlier, guided Free Enterprise Fund's view that the accounting firm's challenge qualified as collateral. The firm, the court reasoned, objected to the board's existence, not of any of the auditing standards it might apply in regulating accountants. Likewise here, both parties object to the commission's power generally, not to anything particular about how that power was wielded. The parties' separation of powers claims do not relate to the subject of the enforcement actions. In the one case, auditing practices, in the other, a business merger. Nor do the parties' claims address the sorts of procedural or evidentiary matters an agency often resolves on its way to a merits decision. The claims, in sum, have nothing to do with the enforcement-related matters the commissions regularly adjudicate, and nothing to do with those they would adjudicate in assessing the charges against Axon and Cochrane. Because that is so, the party's claims are collateral to any commission orders or rules 
from which review might be sought. The government's contrary argument would strip the collateralism factor of its appropriate function. In the government's view, no claim directed at a pending commission proceeding can qualify as collateral to it, even if wholly disconnected in subject. The government thinks that position consistent with Free Enterprise Fund because there an SEC proceeding had not yet begun. But the government's argument still conflicts with Free Enterprise Fund's reasoning. In addressing why the firm's claim was collateral, the court focused solely on what it was about. Again, that the firm challenged the board's existence, not its auditing standards. And anyway, the government's theory ill-fits the point of the Thunder Basin inquiry to decide when a particular claim is of the type to fall outside a statutory review scheme. That inquiry, just as Free Enterprise Fund recognized, requires considering the nature of the claim, not the status, pending or not, of an agency proceeding. Or said another way, the inquiry contemplates, as our collateral order doctrine also does, that even when a proceeding is pending, an occasional claim make it immediate review, in part because it involves something discreet. The government's redefinition of what counts as collateral would effectively foreclose that possibility. Third and finally, Cochrane's and Axon's claims are outside the Commission's expertise. On that issue, Free Enterprise Fund could hardly be clearer. Claims that tenure protections violate Article 2, the court there determined, raise standard questions of administrative and constitutional law, detached from considerations of agency policy. That statement covers Axon's and Cochrane's claims that ALJs are far too insulated from the president's supervision, and Axon's constitutional challenge to the combination of prosecutorial and adjudicative functions is of a piece, similarly distant from the FTC's competence and expertise. The Commission knows a good deal about competition policy, but nothing special about the separation of powers. For that reason, we observed two terms ago, agency adjudications are generally ill-suited to address structural constitutional challenges, like those maintained here. On this last factor, even the government mostly gives up the ghost. Its argument goes, even when an agency lacks expertise in interpreting the Constitution, it can still apply its expertise by deciding other issues, whether statutory, regulatory, or factual. That may obviate the need to address the constitutional challenge. The first clause of that sentence concedes the expertise point, and the rest cannot reclaim it. True enough, we partly relied in Elgin on the MSPB's expertise 
on a raft of ordinary employment issues surrounding the employee's contention that the Equal Protection Clause barred his discharge. But the government here does not pretend that Axon's and Cochran's constitutional claims are similarly intertwined with or embedded in matters on which the commissions are expert. And unlike in Elgin, ruling for Axon and Cochran on expertise-laden grounds would not obviate the need to address their constitutional claims, which again allege injury not from this or that ruling, but from subjection to all agency authority. Those claims of here and now harm would remain no matter how much expertise could be brought to bear on the other issues these cases involve. All three Thunder Basin factors thus point in the same direction, toward allowing district court review of Axon's and Cochran's claims that the structure or even existence of an agency violates the Constitution. For the reasons given above, those claims cannot receive meaningful judicial review through the FTC Act or Exchange Act. They are collateral to any decisions the commissions could make in individual enforcement proceedings, and they fall outside the commission's sphere of expertise. Our conclusion follows. The claims are not of the type the statutory review schemes reach. A district court can therefore review them. We accordingly reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and remand the two cases for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.